Our text for today is from Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the depth, by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. I hope I'm not the first person to say that to you. I try to handle my own slides. We will know in about 10 seconds whether I'll be capable of doing that or not. Eric, bear with me. Thank you. We looked at Romans in the fall, and now we're looking at Jesus. But the thing about the scriptures are they're very interdependent. And Paul has things to teach us about Jesus. And then we go back to the stories and the miracles, the mighty acts of Jesus and his teachings. Romans helps us understand those even better. Jesus is timely. In our theology, and theology might be a word you don't like, you might not think of yourself as a theologian, but every thought that you have about God is doing theology, regardless of your age, regardless of your familiarity with theology as a discipline, regardless even of your theology with respect to the Bible. It's definitely not working, so good luck. My iPad's not working. Our tech is great. I screwed it up. None of you are surprised. You know me. The best place to begin our theology, and this will not end our work, is how does God describe himself? And how does God describe his work? And that doesn't end our questions, it doesn't answer all of our questions, but it is the right place to begin. So we note from Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that this happened at the right time. And this summary, which begins one of the sweetest sections of the scriptures, which is what life in the spirit is and looks like, Romans 5 through 8, begins with a summary not just of Christ's work on the cross and rising from the dead and then ascending to heaven. This is actually a summary of all of the work that he did after the incarnation and during his earthly ministry. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And I don't know what that sounds like as confidently as I used to. I don't know if that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up because it's such a sweet and beautiful promise. I don't know whether it seems like strange language that's other and disconnected from your regular life. But if you go back to the, to the, um, 
the example that I'm going to use from the book of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus has this interaction with a young man, and perhaps you know this story. I'm going to read it. This is in Mark, chapter 10. It's called, in my Bible, The Rich Young Man. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Which is interesting. That's uh, He left out a command. I think Jesus was trying to intrigue the young man. The young man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. There's so much in that text that I'm not preaching on. We're not going to get into because I'm not preaching on it. But Romans 5 opens that passage to us and we see how kind Jesus was attempting to draw this young Jewish man into the story of the gospel. And because he had not finished his earthly work, Jesus' explanations are often um, veiled. And that's part of the reason we need to go back to Romans, even though I preached on it in the fall, to help us more fully understand the human face of Jesus, the kind tone in asking this young man questions and pointing some things out. And maybe he became a follower of Jesus. We don't know. Jesus appeared to just under 500 people in his resurrected state, according to 1 Corinthians. Maybe this young man was one of those people. So we turn to Romans and learn that Jesus is timely. Why? I have some speculation about this. I think it was because, I think, Israel existed but was an occupied uh, country at the time, which was very ripe for them to understand the gospel of Jesus. But more importantly than my speculation is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying this was the right time, roughly 2,000 years ago, for God to take on human flesh in order to reconcile us to the Father. So using Paul's language, Jesus is pursuing this man in Mark chapter 10 to help him see that he's ungodly. The command that he left out was coveting. If you, if you look at the commands that Jesus listed, the command that he left out in terms of a command, there are a lot of commands, but the, the other, others-oriented commands from Exodus 20, the one Jesus left out was coveting. Why? He was gently pursuing this man to help him see that he was, to use Romans 5 language, ungodly and weak. In theological language, weak is not a negative term as in like you're a bad human. It's you're a human who needs God to save and reconcile you. So was Jesus punctual? Yes. One of my favorite comedians has this whole bit about late people and on-time people. My wife is an on-time person. I am a late person, so it's a challenge to listen to this comedian with her, but we laughed a lot. He goes on and on about how Jesus was an on-time people, was an on-time person, and he shares something that's not biblical, but I'm going to tie it back to the Bible. He says, what you, what you late people don't know about us on-time people is that we hate you. And being a late person, sitting next to an on-time person, made me laugh that much harder. 
The truth is Jesus was exactly on time. And we can speculate about as to why, but what's more important than that speculation and what's exponentially more important than what the comedian Mike Birbiglia thinks about on-time people is Jesus came at the right time. Jesus is timely in accomplishing the unfathomable. That's my summary for verse 7, where in the longest extended argument in the scriptures that I'm aware of, which is the book of Romans, Paul stops his argument to talk very humanly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Scarcely, that's his human, comparative, mundane language that sometimes we see a shred of the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice in the way humans sometimes stand uh, in front of danger for one another. But it's pretty rare. Paul stops using his soaring, inspirational, theological language to compare it in in a human way. And he's doing it to get our attention. And then verse 8, he switches to the present tense. I know we've talked about this before, and some of you listen to me very carefully, which is an incredible honor. For all of us, it's good to notice the present tense of verse 8. But God shows. This is a truth that the Holy Spirit in this moment, for those of you that are trusting Christ, the Holy Spirit is assuring your heart that this is true right now. And you have this truth every moment. It is not something that fades. It is not a love that falters. That you're saved, reconciled. Just the ED words from verse 8 to verse 11. Died, justified, saved, reconciled, reconciled, saved, received, reconciliation, are all the promises that give us the assurance that we are secure in him. That's why Paul switches to the present tense. Might drive some of you nuts, especially if you're into English and the, the, what is it, nouns and verbs are supposed to agree in number and in gender, is that right? Something like that. I have a degree in English. I should be able to remember this. But in theological language, what's important is that we see what has happened in the past and what that's supposed to do in the future is assure us of God's love. Do you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, that when you are in heaven, you will not be any more secure than you are right now? You'll feel more secure because the presence of sin will be gone. You'll be delighted because you'll be with Jesus, which is the sweetest part of heaven. But you will not actually be more secure then than you are now. Had a Dane say it. Dane, who's a theologian who got a lot better grades than me in seminary, also used to be a member of this church, wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. There are copies of it in the back. If you'd like to read along... We will be less sinful in the next life than we are now, but we will not be any less secure in the next life than we are now. 
And you're like, but I don't, like, my brain has trouble with that. That's why I'm preaching about it. It doesn't feel like that. That's where I'm letting you down and where the world is giving you bad data and the evil, all these things. It's still true that you are secure in him. If he has pursued you in love and you have responded by saying, Jesus, you're Lord, then you are secure in him. And you cannot become more secure. Jesus is timely in accomplishing the unfathomable, reconciling us. Paul is using soaring language with one purpose, to assure you that you have already been made right with God. Your relationship with God is entirely restored. Which is the beginning of the most delightful, mundane part of being a Christian, Romans 5 through 8, life in the Spirit. When he says, since, when he says, if, when he says, much more, when he says, if, when he says, much more, again, he's expecting that to encourage you. This series is about the very motivation of God. That's why we're going to go to the Old Testament next week because in understanding the motivation of God in the Old Testament, we understand better the motivation of Jesus in his earthly ministry. The very motivation of God did not hold back, does not hold back. He comes after us unfalteringly, unwaveringly, without hesitation. Elsewhere in... um, Gentle and lowly, Dane describes this as the invincibilizing of your heart. Like it doesn't feel invincible. That's why we're here. To learn and then remember and even remind one another your heart has been invincibilized. I know it's not a word, but it kind of makes the point, doesn't it? You have been adopted by God. And because it's God who did it, regardless of how our legal system works, you cannot be unadopted. Which frees us into not only life in the Spirit, but something that's part of life in the Spirit, which is repentance to God and to neighbor. And this is so lovely because the world would either convince us, I think the world's main argument towards sin today, this is way too big of a statement, I don't know why I'm saying it this way. What it sounds like the most often to me is sin doesn't really exist. There's just a lack of information, you just need to you know, grow up in your ability to interact with neighbor and the world, right? But if sin does exist and we have a knowledge of it, without God it will crush us. But with the knowledge of God, what we actually have the opportunity to do is learn to repent. To use the language of the category, a lifestyle of repentance. Does your sin bother you? When you harm someone, does it bug you? Listen, the reason I put this question up there, because it it, the question could be ironically shaming or bother us, when your sin bothers you, that's actually 
some measure of proof that the Spirit's in you. And then you get to repent to God and to the neighbor that you hurt, which is, I'm sorry, forgive me. I am going to work on that. Or I am working on it, right? Jesus is timely in accomplishing the unfathomable, reconciling us, and we rejoice. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is not only why we do corporate worship, it's why we do corporate worship the way that we do it. We are trying to entrust ourselves to God so that he form us. That's why we confess, because that's a good model. Life and practice before God. That's why we pray for one another, prayers of the people. That's why we sometimes read this text slowly. We might drink it in. That's why we sing to be formed by God. Corporate worship is both foundational to who we are as human beings. That is what makes humans unique, the choice of what to worship. In my experience, atheists understand that oftentimes more quickly even than religious people. Those of you that know me well can tell that uh, something's a little off today. Um, and I'm a, uh, for some of you love this, some of you are troubled by it, others it's just fine, but I'm a relatively emotional person. I try and be straightforward. Um, a friend of mine died last night. And the reason I bring it up is not only because I'm sad and some of you can tell and you were like, I was wondering what was going on. Some of you thought you could tell, but you couldn't. Uh, anyway. For about the last 15 years, he is in my friendship was about 25% of what it could have been. And I realized that about a year ago when I called him and we talked for about 90 minutes. And since then we were talking about every three months. We were reconciled. And he's an EPC church planter and pastor. And I believe he would want me to remind you, encourage you, perhaps tell you for the first time, what we receive in Christ is that much more profound and beautiful version of that. Have you been reconciled with a friend? You're like, this friendship is so sweet now. I wish I had called him years ago. I didn't actually know how I had handled something poorly. He made a mistake and then I responded to it poorly is what happened. And I'm so glad that we reconciled. It made it easier to tell his wife, I miss him and I love you. And how much more sweet. It's not even that Jesus' arms are open wide. It's that they're around you. You have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. God shows, present tense, we have that assurance of reconciliation now, and we will always have it. And that is sweet good news. Would you pray with me?
Father, we praise you that at the right time, you sent your son. We thank you that he pursued so many, religious and irreligious, sick and the hurting, children and friends. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for pursuing us in love and guiding us into calling you Lord over our lives, over our salvation, over our words, our deeds. Father, Son, and Spirit, (laughs) I have a lot on my mind. I ask that you help me both to grieve and to celebrate because there is still good news today. I pray that over these men and women also, that as we sort through the many things that are on our mind, we also, Holy Spirit, through your power, are enabled to praise because your news is still good. Amen.